Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to Literary Arts, the Archive Project. I'm your host this week, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. If you've listened to our show before, you probably know that we often broadcast recordings of lectures or conversations from recent events that we've hosted, or sometimes from past events, hence the name, The Archive Project. Don't worry, we're still going to be doing that. But in this episode, we're changing it up a little bit. We're going to take you behind the scenes at Portland Book Festival 2023, which took place just last month in downtown Portland on Saturday, November 4th. The festival featured over 100 writers in more than 50 events throughout the day. One of the best things about book festivals, I think, and I plan this one, is the magic of having that particular group of authors all together in the same place at the same time. It might and probably is the only time that some of them are at the same event. This makes for great onstage conversations and connections, but it also means that authors get to connect with each other offstage, in the green room, at the post-fest party, and even going to each other's events. So thinking about that magic and that opportunity, we asked six of the festival authors to recommend a book by another author in the festival. The ask resulted in some wonderful cross-genre action. A young adult novelist recommends a science journalist and essayist, an adult novelist shares her love for a poet, and a cultural essayist shouts out a memoir, and much, much more. We'll hear from novelist Luis Alberto Orea, author of Goodnight Irene, from Jennifer Baker, author of the young adult novel Forgive Me Not, Naomi Alderman shares recommendations. She is, of course, the author of the novel The Future and the super mega bestseller The Power, Portland's own Mitchell S. Jackson, author of Fly, the Big Book of Basketball Fashion, Neil Thompson, who was a festival moderator and is the author of The First Kennedys and the Blood and Whiskey newsletter, which features book recommendations and cocktail recipes, as well as Eden Lepucky, author most recently of the novel Time's Mouth. Given that it is the holiday season, we thought you might get some gift-giving inspiration from their recommendations. And you'll get a peek behind the scenes at Portland Book Festival, where authors geek out about their fellow authors. It turns out that even incredibly famous, super best-selling authors are just like us. They're fans too, and they get really excited to tell you about the last book that they loved. Each author will share their recommendation and why they chose it, and then we'll hear a bit from the event featuring the author of the book that they're recommending. The Archive Project editor and producer, Matthew Workman, narrates our journey, taking us from the author green room out to the festival stages, and finally, to the author party, your only chance to join this exclusive festival closing event. Let's join Matthew on site at Portland Book Festival the morning of Saturday, November 4th, 2023. It's a windy, rainy morning in Portland and people are filing into the Portland Five Rotunda for the start of the 2023 Portland Book Festival. The festival has drawn thousands of people to see more than 100 authors at multiple venues here and at other venues around the South Park blocks. 
And while most people are heading into the first sessions of the day, we are on a mission to find six different authors and get book recommendations from them. We're specifically asking them to recommend other authors at the festival. We're starting with Luis Alberto Urea. His latest novel is Goodnight, Irene. And when we asked him for a recommendation, he answered quickly. Deborah Magpie Erling's luminous new novel, The Lost Journals of Sacagawea. And why did you choose this one? Well, she's a pal of mine. We have uh, Oregon roots. We first met out at Fish Trap down in Joseph, Oregon. And so we've known each other in and out of that nexus and then our writing lives. And uh, this book, I think, is transformative and evolutionary for her. I don't think she necessarily wanted to do it. She, the Josephi Center down there in Joseph, Oregon had, I think, been prodding and pushing her to do a book and to reconsider Sacagawea. And she did, and it's such a radical rethinking that I think it may be much closer to the truth than the uh, handed down wisdom about the Lewis and Clark expedition. So when you say it's transformative, is it transformative of the subject matter or is it a transformative work for the author? I think both. She's a brilliant writer anyway, but uh, I think sometimes you reach certain plateaus that take you elsewhere. And I'm not sure she wanted to do the story necessarily. I don't want to speak for her, but she took it on. And I think she started realizing that the inherited wisdom of the story of Lewis and Clark and their expedition and all the things about Sacagawea were probably incorrect. And uh, some of the revolutionary stuff in the book that she positions Sacagawea as a seven-year-old girl, first of all, who is you know, essentially sold to these guys. And that she has this other life that we don't necessarily understand or because we're blinded by the myth about her um, what she may have really been as a person and how brilliant she was and just the thought of all the languages Sacagawea learned and mastered to translate back and forth between all the nations that they met including English uh, is very impressive. Now let's hear a little of Deborah Magpie Erling reading from her book The Lost Journals of Sacagawea at the 2023 Portland Book Festival. Days of Trap for the Great White Father. Lewis and Clark are sending Fox to the Great White Father. They do not know they have trapped Spirit Fox, who carries the weight of a man possessed by must not be named. Meriwether places caged Fox at the edge of camp because his cage is foul as pig's blood, he says. But I know Meriwether is afraid. Every night, caged fox moves when night fastens the moon-heavy water to spirits. When light sifts down through dark currents and river begins chanting, do not look, I want to warn them. There at the bottom, there along the lip of shore where water channels must not be named. Do white men know the dim sky water carries is older than time, older than blood, bigger? I cannot save these white men from what comes. I cannot save myself. I pray for pomp. I pray for river. 
I pray for Fox. In the deepest still place of river, Fox is chanting, Fox conjures death, beaver slick currents to overturn boats, a fool's beauty, sparkling scales of fish scatter silt. Fox gnashes his teeth, his black mouth snaps at his cage, his teeth bite, 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 bite. Clark can't put his cage far enough away from me. In the dark, he is a thing moving. I wake to his rattling cage beside me. Fox whispers a harsh wind low. I open the cage door, he remains. Fox blood is sour, his small head wounded. I'm afraid of his teeth, his grim shine eyes. Mostly, I am afraid of his voice. He could kill me with his stories. He could kill my baby. I bludgeoned my wife, he tells me. I broke the blood of her flesh. I broke the thin bones of her fingers for touching another man. I branded her ribs with fists. I stabbed her with a fire stick to sear her to me. She turned so many colors, the sky could no longer please me. Who is she, I ask? Wife for dark nights, he answers. Wife for dark nights, wife for dark nights, wife for dark nights, wife for dark nights, wife for dark nights. I am sick with grief. I pray for what cannot be. I pray Fox takes pity on these white men who cause so much trouble. I pray Fox takes pity on many teeth. I pray Fox takes pity on me and my baby. Uh, Deborah. Thank you for being my pal and being a good friend to our family. Um, I am so looking forward to whatever is next. Every time you do a book, it's more astonishing to me. So I'm, I'm sitting back uh, with a fan's eagerness, hoping for the next one. That's Luis Alberto Gurea recommending Deborah Magpie Erling's The Lost Journals of Sacagawea. Next up, we've got Jennifer Baker. Her debut young adult novel, Forgive Me Not, was published in August. And while Baker's book is about the juvenile justice system, the book she recommends is far more aquatic. Sabrina Imbler's How Far the Light Reaches. And why'd you choose that one? I am a big fan of Sabrina. I actually got to meet them earlier this year for the National Book Awards Science and Literature Prize, and Sabrina had won for their chapbook, Dyke Geology, and that led me to the new book. Well, newish, I think it came out in 2022, and I'm super glad Sabrina's still talking about it, and it's won awards and been on any of these lists, and I'm just such a fan of Sabrina's writing of merging the personal with the science, the oceanography, the personal stories, even in the first essay, talking about goldfish and motherhood and octopus and all those things. It just comes together so organically, and this has been Sabrina's trajectory from the chap book and I think a digital edition and now this book and it's just beautiful the covers gorgeous when you're on stage with Sabrina they have such vibrant energy and it translates to the page it's just such a good book such such a good book is there 
something you read in that book that changed you in some way? I don't know. That's a great question, though. That I don't know. I, I feel like I was just so immersed in the writing, and I feel like that's the best kind of reading, is when you don't think about reading. And also, I'm a writer slash editor, you know? So sometimes you're editing people's stuff <laughs> as you're reading. And so it's just like, shut up, mind. <laughs> and I, I enjoy Sabrina's work in that I just get to go with it and enjoy it and want to be led because I trust them as a writer. And they're building sentences and paragraphs and essays into this very warm and thoughtful and logical and scientific and, you know, kind of activisty way. And that's hard. That's really hard to do. Now let's hear Sabrina Embler reading from their book, How Far the Light Reaches. Years ago, when I was in the seventh grade, an octopus sailed off the seafloor and secured herself to a rocky outcropping nearly a mile below the surface, thousands of feet past any tendrils of sun. I know about the octopus because a remotely operated submersible watched her glide toward the cliff. When the researchers returned a little more than a month later, they found the same octopus, they could tell by her scars, latched onto the side of the outcropping, her arms coiled around her like suckered fiddlehead ferns, sealing in a newly laid clutch of eggs. The sub returned again and again to visit the mother octopus who remained frozen in her vigil. She did not move, she did not eat, she shrank. Each visit found her paler as if she had been dipped in milk. The sub kept returning, seeing the octopus 18 times over the course of four and a half years until one day it arrived to find the octopus gone. She had left behind a silhouette in tattered egg capsules still clinging to the rock like deflated balloons. This, the scientists understood, was a sign that her eggs had hatched successfully, freeing the mother octopus to die. The scientists who observed the octopus called her four-and-a-half-year brooding period the longest on record for any animal. In other words, no other creature on Earth had held its eggs close to its body and protected them for as long as she did. More than anything, I wanted to know why the octopus, with her big and alien brain, did not eat while she brooded her eggs. I couldn't imagine how a creature with a consciousness would starve for four and a half years without something like hope. What I mean to say is I wanted to know whether she ever regretted it. Thank you. So uh, the octopus essay is the first essay that I would write for my essay collection. Um, and I learned about this octopus when I was, I, I, I really wanted to be a science journalist. I really wanted to be Ed Yong, because who doesn't love Ed Yong? Um, but at the time, I was working for a product review company, and I was like reviewing toasters and rice cookers. And I had a part-time job <laughs> writing clickbait about the ocean. I'm not proud of it, but I did it. And I would write stories like, you'll never guess how this seal wound up on a farm. Um, and the answer is always like the seal walked there. <laughs> um, but I was writing these like silly little 300 word stories and um, I was reading news about the ocean every single week and I read about this octopus um, which scientists just published a paper basically documenting the fact that she brooded her eggs for four and a half years which is the longest known brooding period of any animal. And I didn't realize that whenever um, 
So when a female octopus and a male octopus mate, the male immediately dies, and then the female lays her eggs, and that is the beginning of the end of her life. She watches over the eggs, she oxygenates them, she protects them from predators because eggs are so tasty <laughs> in the deep sea, and um, she just stops eating. And then when the eggs hatch, the octopus dies. And I was so struck by this story of this octopus and so frustrated that the only way that I had to write about it was 300 words of clickbait. And so I just thought about this octopus for like a year and I, I just, I wanted to add something to her story but I wasn't really sure like, what else could I report about this octopus? Like she was covered in every paper, like Ed Young wrote about her beautifully. So I didn't really have anything to add on that front. And I think that's when I realized like, the reason I'm thinking so much about this octopus is because I'm thinking about my own relationship to, to eating, to periods of starvation, to my own mother who also has a complicated relationship with eating and food and I think passed some of that to me and I think I realized like in my head these stories are all deeply connected so like why not try, <laughs> why not try to put them together and so that was the first essay that I, I wrote in the book and sort of I think set the ground for the formula that I use in a lot of the book, which is kind of like, here's a sea creature, and then here is me, and <laughs> here is how I, I bring us together. Um, but yeah, I, I think about this octopus all the time. Oh, I would say to Sabrina that I'm so glad that your work has reached so many people and has gotten those accolades. And I, and I recognize that maybe that wasn't the goal, but that it creates a conversation that I think may have been intentional, and I'm super glad for that, and I'm super glad that they're in the space to write and write about what they want, about queerness and family and oceans and science and octopus and goldfish and tectonics and all that stuff. So I'm just super glad that Sabrina's writing, and I'm super glad they're a voice that we have. That's Jennifer Baker. She recommends Sabrina Embler's How Far the Light Reaches. We bumped into Naomi Alderman at the Green Room at the festival. When the author best known for writing The Power heard about this book recommendation project, she said she had an author whose book she wanted to spotlight and maybe an ulterior motive for spotlighting it. I recommend Curtis Sittenfeld's book, Romantic Comedy, which is just a really good time. If you would like a book which you can read in a day, you'll have a great time with it. It's a romance set in a kind of a show that's a bit like Saturday Night Live. Um, and it's just, it's funny and it's charming and delightful. And she takes you by the hand and goes, come and have a good time with me. I'll tell you what insight it gave me. It made me think, why do I spend all my time reading quite serious books when I could sometimes be reading books that are going to really be good fun? And Kurt Sittenfeld, actually, she's an incredibly interesting writer. The writing is crisp and sharp and funny, and she's written some very serious political books. And with this one, I feel like she went, do you know what? Let's all have fun. And if you're a writer of her caliber, you can just do that. As a writer of your caliber, is it difficult to read for fun? Some people who are musicians have a hard time listening to music for fun because they're taking it apart all the time. It's definitely something that I'm trying to learn how to do again. Um, obviously, obviously, I got into this because reading was my always my top pleasure, my great delight. Um, but it is true that once you're writing yourself, then you're looking going, how did they do that? How did they create that effect? How did they move between those characters so seamlessly? And so that does take away your enjoyment a bit. However, I feel quite inspired to now go out and seek some just 
pure pleasure. At the festival, Curtis Sittenfeld talked about romantic comedy and her journey to writing something fun. When I would do like a Zoom event and somebody would say, you know, what's, what's the next thing that you're going to write? And I would say, I want to write a, a novel that's like short and fun. And I, I like Rodham. It's not short and it's not fun. <laughs> like, um, so then I started a, a different book and I got about eight months into it. And it, it also was not short and not fun. And this is now it's like early 2021. Mm -hmm. um, we were and, not in a great space yeah, then, and just in case anyone forgot. <laughs> well, and actually, specifically, so so I I kind of was was just like uh, like I think I was like I I have tried to find my pandemic escape novel, the one I'm you know writing, not just reading, and like I I messed up and this wasn't it. And then so I kind of paused, and then it, it actually literally probably. When I started romantic comedy, it was within a couple of weeks of in the summer of 2021. I think there was or kind of spring to summer. There was a brief moment when it seemed like if you got the COVID vaccine, um, that you would not get COVID. And then it became clear, I think, in early August that actually you you know you, it won't be as bad, but you certainly can like break through infections are going to be like normal. And I have a really close friend who's a doctor across the street, and she was saying like like because remember we used to be like oh when when COVID goes away or when it's over, and she was like it's not going to be over. Like and anyway, and specifically in Minnesota in June 2021, I think the rates were the highest they'd ever been, and they stayed that high until like December. So so I, I, at that moment, I, I think, I mean, this is really nitty gritty, but I think there was like two or three days when I was like, I was like, I think I'm going to write a really painful family novel. And, and, and like after a day or two, I was like, no, 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 no. Like, and then I was like, <laughs> so I, you know, like Sally, I would watch SNL and I would, I would think to myself, someone should write a screenplay about this pattern, you know, right. that has someone Sally-like as the main character. And I think it was in August of 2021 that I thought to myself, maybe that screenplay should be a novel and that someone who writes it should be me. Um, and then that was when I was kind of like, oh, like, and, and I, I mean, I did feel almost like, is this, is it like too thin and too, fun a premise, which is probably actually a good sign if you're like, is this too fun a premise for, <laughs> and also in the age of, you know, shrinking attention span, like also, is this, will this be too short? It's probably like the best possible question you can, <laughs> you can ask yourself, but anyway. So if yeah. I, if I manage to find Curtis Sittenfeld today, I will go up to her and say, I'm a huge fan of your work and I love the breadth and the range of what you do. And uh, can we be friends? <laughs> the, how, how it really works with authors meeting at this type of thing is you go up to an author whose work you admire, you go, oh my God, I love your work so much. And then you say, I'm Naomi Alderman. I wrote a novel called The Power, which is about what happens when all of a sudden, almost all the women in the, in the world develop the power to electrocute people at will. And, and then you sort of hope that the author that you like has read your book, in which case it's amazing and you give each other a hug and you're like, oh, I and then, or, which does occasionally happen, you say, they say, oh, and then you go, oh, this is not going to work. I've been reading you for years, but you don't know who I am. So uh, that, that, that's how that works in case anybody wants to know. That's Naomi Alderman. She recommends Curtis Sittenfeld's novel, Romantic Comedy.
Mitchell S. Jackson won a Pulitzer Prize in 2021 for feature writing, and his new book, Fly, the Big Book of Basketball Fashion, has received favorable reviews from both the New York Times and at least one current NBA player. When we asked him for a book recommendation, he chose a memoir from a Jamaican poet. My book recommendation is How to Say Babylon, Sophia Sinclair. I have chosen How to Say Babylon because um, I think it's an important book. It's about uh, Sophia's Rastafarian uh, upbringing in Jamaica, and I didn't know much about Rastafarianism, uh, and specifically about women in Rastafarianism, so I think that's really important. Um, I think it also disabuses um, people who go to Jamaica and think that it's a paradise. I mean, so, so how it becomes a paradise or whose paradise is it? Um, and then I am a person who really loves language and loves sentences. And she's a poet, and the book is full of beautiful language. The sea was the first home I knew. Out here, I spent my childhood in a wild state of happiness, stretched out under the almond trees fed by brine, relishing every fish eye like precious candy. My toes dipped in the sea's milky lapping. I dug for hermit crabs in the shallow sand, splashed in the wet bank where stingrays buried themselves to cool off. I slept under the ripened shade where the sea grapes bruised purple and delicious, ready for sucking. I gorged on almonds and fresh coconut, drinking sweet coconut water through a hole my mother gored with her machete, scraping and eating the wet jelly afterward until I was full. Each day, my joy was a new dress my mother had stitched for me by hand. She and her sisters each had a distinct laugh that rang out ahead of them like happy sirens wherever they went, crashing decibels that alerted the whole village to their gathering. Whenever the sisters sat together on the beach talking, I clung to their ankles and listened, mimicking their feral cackling, which not even the herons overhead could escape. I never loved any place more than this. At night, my mother read to me by the light of a kerosene lamp, upon which I, born stubborn and accident-prone, would often burn my hands. Each scar on my body became a fixed reminder of what was lost, what would never grow back. The hairless scar on my left eyebrow that I got from falling off the tiny bed I shared with my parents. The burn on my temple from the lit mosquito coil I dragged down on my head. The bites from mosquitoes that grew to giant itching wounds, pocking my legs or my tender mouth shattered from a fall on paved concrete where my tooth had ruptured my gums. For months after that, my mother had chewed all my food and fed me from her mouth like a bird. You were born too sensitive for this world, she told me, as I sucked my thumb and pawed at her long dreadlocks, listening to the rushing pull of the waves. My father was not from the seaside. So he never felt at home at White House. He was a man who lived among fishermen but did not eat fish, adhering in all ways to an ascetic Rasta existence. No drinking, no smoking, no meat or dairy, all tenets of a highly restrictive way of living the Rastafari called Ital. 
Already at 26, his thick beard and riverine dreadlocks gave him the wizened look of an auger whose tea leaves only foretold catastrophe. Some days he would bring his guitar to the sand and belt out his reggae songs, forecasting the impending peril of black people with a stormy austerity that must have seemed misplaced at the seaside. There was no time for idling with Babylon on the prowl, he would warn, often trapping villagers into long talks about fortifying their minds and bodies against the evils of the Western world. For a weak mind is ripe for the worms of Babylon, he would caution, slowly sharpening his look into a gaze that would, could overcloud the sun, a gaze that my siblings and I would later come to know all too well. I appreciate that you took your time not just to tell a story, but to do it artfully. I think one of the books that it reminds me of, and I'm not the only person to say this, so it's not like some big uh, revelation, is that it reminds me of Educated. And I think Tara is a great writer and the book did well, but I think we need a more diverse look at that kind of story. And I think that Sophia has done that with How to Say Babylon. By lunchtime, the weather outside the Portland Book Festival had taken a turn for the better. There was actual sunshine, and that brought people outside to sample food from about a dozen carts set up on the South Park blocks. And while the sunshine would last a little bit longer, we had to head back inside to get more book recommendations. Our next author is Neil Thompson. We had asked him to bring a book recommendation, but sometimes one is not enough. Well, I got a few. You, you ever read the New York Times by the book interview? And they ask authors, like, give me one or two, you know, book recommendations, a book that you love, the book that you can't part with. I always like the authors who give, like, ten. You just can't stop. So I'm going to start with two books that I'm an evangelist for. One is called Happiness Falls by Angie Kim. And then the other one is called Time's Mouth by Eden Lepucky. I feel like I've been spending a lot of time with these two books. I write a newsletter on Substack called Blood and Whiskey. And it's like reviews of crime fiction, noir, those kind of things, paired with uh, cocktail recipes and playlists. And recently I reviewed both those books, Happiness Falls and, and Time's Mouth, which led to being invited to the Portland Book Fest to interview the two authors on stage, which happened today. During that interview, we talked about family secrets, because both of these books are about family secrets and deceptions. Um, Angie's book, Happiness Falls, is about this biracial Korean-American family in Virginia. On the opening page of the book, the dad goes missing. The only person who knows what happened during these final moments before he disappeared is the family's uh, 14-year-old son, Eugene, who suffers from autism, severe autism, and this uh, disability called Angelman syndrome. So he's non-speaking. He can't can't tell the family what happened. So that's the setup of the book, is this mystery of where did dad go? What happened to him? Is he dead? Is he alive? Um, And then the mysteries sort of trickle out from there. It's a fascinating book. Now let's hear Angie Kim reading a little bit from her book, Happiness Falls. We didn't call the police right away. Later, I would blame myself, wonder if things might have turned out differently if I hadn't shrugged it off, insisting dad wasn't missing, missing, but just delayed, probably still in the woods looking for Eugene, thinking he'd run off somewhere. 
Mom says it wasn't my fault, that I was merely being optimistic, but I know better. I don't believe in optimism. I believe there's a fine line, if any, between optimism and willful idiocy. So I try to avoid optimism altogether, lest I fall over the line mistakenly. My twin brother, John, says, keeps trying to make me feel better too, saying we couldn't have known something was wrong because it was such a typical morning, which is an asinine thing to say, because why would you assume things can't go wrong simply because they haven't yet? Life isn't geometry. Terrible, life-changing moments don't happen predictably at the bottom of a linear slope. Tragedies and accidents are tragic and accidental precisely because of their unexpectedness. Besides, labeling anything about our family typical, I just have to shake my head. I'm not even thinking about the typical adjacent stuff like John's and my boy-girl twin thing, our biracial mix Korean and white, untraditional parental gender roles, working mom and stay-at-home dad, or different last names. Parson for dad plus park for mom equals mashed up into Parkson for us kids. Not common, certainly, but hardly shocking in our area these days. Where we are indubitably, inherently atypical is with my little brother Eugene's dual diagnosis, autism and a rare genetic disorder called Mosaic Angelman Syndrome, which means he can't talk, has motor difficulties, and this is what fascinates many people who've never heard of Angelman Syndrome, has an unusually happy demeanor with frequent smiles and laughter. Eden Lepucky's book, Time's Mouth, begins with a woman uh, named Sharon who escapes her sort of buttoned-up conservative home in, in Connecticut and moves out west, ends up in California, changes her name to Ursa, discovers she can time travel, go back in time and experience moments in the past. That ability makes her kind of a cult figure, and so she starts a cult, as one does. Um, and the story, story spins out from there um, about the people that Ursa surrounds herself with, then she has a son, he disappears. Um, it's, it's all about sort of family abandonment, family secrets, family lies, but beautifully told, um, super intense, and, and weird in the best way. You've wondered about me when a decade passes as quickly as a year, when you look up and see that life is half over, that it's almost over, that's when you wonder, how did it all pass so quickly? You try to conjure the past and yourself in it, that thing you used to feel, what you wore, how the bed felt in the dark, how you carried your body through space, the depthless mysteries the world created only for you. It's as if those versions of yourself still exist somewhere on another plane, you're sure of it, if only you had access to them. You close your eyes and you can almost touch the past, that's you grasping with tiny hands at the scruff of the family dog, or you're doing cartwheels with your sister, or you're getting a popsicle at the store down the block. There's your dad. Or you're in a low-ceilinged room you'll never see again, listening to someone whose voice you'll never hear again. Or there's a baby in your arms, and that baby is already the only person you can't stand to lose. You can almost touch what's been lost, almost. That child isn't a child anymore, neither are you. This moment is gone and this one is too. It's slurped away from you. I guess I do the slurping, 
not that I have a mouth, or I'm all mouth or mouth-like. I'm not time, but I hold it. Again and again, on and on, I witness how people return to the past in their minds or avoid it altogether, build an altar or dig a hole, pray or bury, try to relive or forget. I am a space that precious few have been able to inhabit for more than a moment. Those who can, those who can slip the membrane and visit those moments again, well, I want to tell you about them. What drew you to those books? You know, I think I'm always looking for fresh voices, something quirky, something original, but also something with uh, a little bit of darkness, a little mystery, not necessarily crime, although the newsletter I write is targeted toward crime fiction novels, but I'll read anything that's adjacent to that. And I think the, those two fit the bill. They, they had mystery, they had secrets, they had deceptions, um, and uh, a little bit of twisted darkness in both of them. One of the things that we drilled down on, again, because the conversation revolved around families and the deceptions that are sort of inherent in many families, whether we intend them to be or not, I was curious about and asked them to address this question of being a writer who writes about family, which is something I did myself. Among my six books is a memoir writing about raising sons who were skateboarders and pot smokers and troublemakers. And so exploring that relationship between writer and family is something that's fascinating to me. And in the case of Angie and Eden, they both draw on their own experiences and they're, they're open about that. You know, they base certain characters on family members and so they've had to not get permission, but you know, bring this up with the family and say, here's how I depicted a version of you. It is fiction, but I'm inspired by my relationship with you or this situation. And I think that's a fascinating a uh, situation for any writer to be in. You, you know, there's great material to be had in those people closest to you. And, and if you're writing fiction, you do your best to fictionalize it and make sure it doesn't come across as just straight uh, stealing from your family. Um, but I think, I think that's when a, when a writer gets it right, and I think Eden and Angie both did, it's, it's pretty intense and dynamic because it's coming from real life. That's Neil Thompson. He recommends Happiness Falls by Angie Kim and Eden Lepucky's book, Time's Mouth. Now you've heard Eden Lepucky read from her own book, but does she have a recommendation of her own? The short answer is yes. The long answer well, starts right now. Story of a poem by Matthew Zapruder. Matthew is a poet who lives in Northern California, and he's also a father. It's a memoir that is also a meditation on poetry. He takes you through the process of writing a single poem, but through that process, you learn all about his child who has autism. And it's about him coming to the understanding that his child has autism, uh, his experience of thinking about himself as an ableist person, um, and kind of what it means to be a parent and accepting your child for who they are. And he also writes a lot about just poetry and what it's done for his life. And you see all these drafts of these poems that he's writing during fire season in Northern California. And it's a slim little book that I had on my bedside table that I would kind of dip into, you know, not quite regularly, but whenever I wanted to feel connected to another person's kind of thoughtful, tender consciousness, and it's a great book. What draws you to it? 
You know, I'm not a poet, but I would like to be. <laughs> so I love to read poetry, and I also just love to be in a poet's mind. And I think poets who write prose, they just have kind of a different approach. So some, I'm, I'm a novelist, and I, I love writing sentences, and I think it's really fun to make image, but not to the extent where all I have is image. And so I'm kind of jealous of poetry's lyric moment, I guess. And I think poets who write prose and tell a narrative, they do it a little differently. And I just, I just want to be in their heads and know what they're thinking about. And like, how does a, how do you write a poem? And it's not a how, it's not a, it's definitely not a how-to manual at all. It's more just a thoughtful meditation on poetry and life and fatherhood. And I'm a mother and I love anybody, but especially poets maybe thinking about that topic of parenthood. As a writer, is it difficult to read for pleasure? Yeah, I mean, I definitely am always thinking, like, how is this made? And I think sometimes I actually listen to a lot of audiobooks, nonfiction, nonfiction audiobooks, because I have a harder time understanding the formal structure if I'm listening to it, and that allows me to be more ignorant about it as it unfolds. I'm kind of powerless to its story. But when I'm reading, and even as I'm analyzing it, I just think it's fun. So I like that dorky quality of myself. And I approach, I'm not a musician, so I approach music from that plane of total unknowing, and I'm happy to be blissed out on that plane and actually don't want to learn about any music so I can continue to be in that ignorant plane, um, that kind of animalistic pleasure. You know, I can't go backwards with narrative, so I'll just have to interpret it as I go. Now here's Matthew Zapruder reading a couple of excerpts from Story of a Poem. It's 5 a.m. and the busy street is quiet. Outside the window, the leaves of the trees are black. Wires slice through the darkness, making dark shapes. The sky gradually becomes visible. I can feel Sarah and Simon still asleep in the rooms behind me. For a moment, I can almost imagine I'm at the prow of a ship, sitting still as the world rotates into unhelpful light. A little tremor shakes the desk, and I feel a flash of panic, but it's not an earthquake just a lone truck passing. Last night, as I was putting him to bed, I told him that something would happen in two sleeps. It's something I've heard other parents say, and I found it coming out of my mouth. I didn't know if he'd heard me, lost as he so often was in singing one of his favorite songs. Often he will seem not to hear, and then a few hours or days later will repeat what was said, or answer a question asked minutes or even hours ago. Sometimes months later, he will repeat something I said to him, laughing. It's as if he and I are in an endless conversation, the pace of which is slower than I could ever have imagined. All summer, I had been writing a poem every morning and emailing it to Matt. He would send me a new poem back too. I told myself and believed that these were just practice for what would eventually be the real writing, a neat trick, impossible to deliberately replicate. I never had a plan or any idea where to begin. I would sometimes choose a phrase that seemed to glow with at least a little potential. This autumn morning, I remember Matt once showed me how you can start a poem by putting one or two lines in the middle of the page and then writing out from them, alternating a line before and then one after. He said this method came to him in a dream. Two sleeps I type in the middle of the page, then roll the platen up one line to type above it something that could make sense as a line before, then back down to type something that could go after. 
in the redwoods, two sleeps watch over. Watch over what? I don't know. It's just a beginning, but as Bob Haas says, you can't revise nothing. Not until nothing becomes a few words. When you have no ideas, or too many, it's best to find a few words that seem to have potential, for now inexplicable. The painter Degas once said to his friend Mallarmé, I want to write poems, but I have too many ideas. Mallarmé replied, poems, my dear Degas, are not made of ideas, but of words. <laughs> Poetry makes nothing happen, W.H. Auden wrote, which doesn't mean it does nothing. It makes nothing happen. It activates the silence. You begin, and now there's something to listen to. Yeah. So that's the beginning. Thank you. Um, at this time when I started writing this book, I'd also just uh, gotten sober. One thing that ha happened to me as I was writing is I was having a lot of very intense memories, uh, like remembering things uh, in a way that I didn't, wasn't used to. So it ends up, the book ends up being also kind of tracing my own, how I got here as a writer. Yeah. And so that's sort of, I talk about that a bit in this passage I'm about to read. So, so I, I start off with a quote from Richard Hugo, who was, a, who was a famous poet from the Pacific Northwest, a wonderful poet. Richard Hugo writes, when you start to write, you carry to the page one of two attitudes, though you may not be aware of it. One is that all music must conform to truth. The other, that all truth must conform to music. If you believe the first, you are making your job very difficult. <laughs> when I first started to write poems, I carried both attitudes with me. I believed on the one hand that music must conform to truth. You start with what you want to say and use music to convey it in the most powerful way. This sounds, when I think of it, dangerously like advertising or propaganda. At the same time, I was looking to write not in order to convey any message, but to search for it to search for and submit to a different kind of music, a deeper order or significance, an intimated truth that could not otherwise be felt. And I believed this deeper order could only be found through intuition. I had to completely trust and defer to it. This presumably would lead to deeper poetic knowledge. This unresolved contradiction within me made things, as Hugo points out, very difficult. Mm -hmm. For hours I would sit scratching my head, writing down a few words and then erasing them, was I supposed to be saying something I already knew in the most beautiful possible way, or trying to follow music, whatever that was, to find out what I did not know I believed? And if the latter, how was I supposed to write without controlling what I wrote? Wouldn't that lead to complete gibberish? I was working at cross purposes. The poems I wrote to express what I already knew felt dead on the page. I was coming up with decorated language to say what could be more directly said, but I didn't know what else to do how to create the mystery and strangeness in the poems that I loved. The poems I read by others and loved the most seemed so clear, but full of something that was somehow outside the writer, as if the poet were channeling something. And then this one more paragraph. I have come to believe that writing is an endless, shifting negotiation between intention and discovery, ideas brought to the page and ones uncovered in the process of writing itself, music and truth. Sometimes I know what I want to say, Almost always, I can only really discover what I think and believe through the process of writing the poem. I have to let myself be okay with both states and to shift freely between them. I have to let myself make mistakes, be foolish and wrong, to write things down that make no sense, but seem beautiful or funny or weird, and then use my intuition to guide me to what feels truthful to me. I would like to tell Matthew Zapruder that he has written such a beautiful, honest book. 
that's really what is important to me in works of fiction or nonfiction, that this sense of the author being unafraid to reveal things that maybe are a little dark or are not the most flattering. I mean, this is a memoir about parenthood, and he's he's unafraid to say, this is what I thought at the time, and now I'm a little bit embarrassed about that, or this is where I feel unsure of myself. Um, and I liked that, and I loved, I loved the wrestling on the page with all these big ideas. That's Eden Lepucky. She recommends Matthew Zapruder's Story of a Poem. And this is where the evening ends for most of the authors who've heard in the last hour. This is the famed Portland Book Festival after party. Okay, I don't know if it's actually famed, but it should be. There are dozens of authors in this room sharing a drink, talking shop, and renewing friendships. And there are more than a few conversations like the one Naomi Alderman described that can basically be summed up as, I love your work, will you be my friend? And this is where our journey together ends as well. While we can't offer you a drink and the friendship of a best-selling author, we can offer you these book recommendations and our best wishes this holiday season. So, happy holidays. Back to you, Amanda. A huge thank you to our narrator and interviewer for this episode, the Archive Project producer and editor, Matthew Workman. We heard from Portland Book Festival 2023 authors, Luis Alberto Urea, author of Goodnight Irene, who recommended Deborah Magpie Earling's The Lost Journals of Sacagawea. Jennifer Baker, author of Forgive Me Not, recommends Sabrina Embler's How Far the Light Reaches. Naomi Alderman, author of The Future, recommended Curtis Settenfield's Romantic Comedy. Mitchell S. Jackson, author of Fly, The Big Book of Basketball Fashion, recommends Sophia Sinclair's How to Say Babylon. Neil Thompson, author of The First Kennedys, recommended two books, Angie Kim's Happiness Falls and Eden Lepucky's Time's Mouth. And Eden Lepucky recommends Matthew Zapruder's Story of a Poem. We hope that you pick up some or all of these books at your favorite independent bookstore and our best wishes for a joyful holiday season, any and all of the ways that you celebrate. Thank you also to Gabriel Kahane and the Oregon Symphony for sharing the audio from their Portland Book Festival cover-to-cover event featuring Matthew Zapruder. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Matthew Workman for radio and podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Joti Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thank you also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.